Welcome to Veterans Connected, where maintenance and reliability expert and military veteran Eric Bevavino connects with fellow veterans in industry during each episode, where they exchange their experiences and discuss the transition from the military to industry and the paths and resources that led them to where they are today. The Veterans Connected podcast is proudly produced by the industry's leading network and learning community, Mobius Connect. Eric, over to you. Hi, I'm Eric Bevavino, host of the Mobius Connect podcast focused on connecting military veterans to the maintenance and reliability community. My aim here is to bridge the understanding gap between the military and civilian worlds, thereby improving the veteran transition journey and ultimately providing hope and a helping hand to any of our brothers and sisters out there struggling to find their way. We'll do this by interviewing veterans who have successfully made it through. For this session, we've chosen to interview one such Army veteran, Clark. G. Smith, whose fascinating and patriotic story is a must-listen for anyone interested in joining us on this mission. Hey, Clark. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Season two, episode two. So, you know, if you believe in numbers and luck, go play 22 on roulette today and and you might be a lucky winner. Uh So our listeners may be interested to know that Clark and I have known each other for quite some time. I don't know. It's probably well over 20 years. 92? 92. Yeah, that's right. Lieutenant uh, junior grade. Yeah. So I was out of, I was right out of the military second year in the uh, corporate world, working for Castrol, and Clark uh, came in, and that's where we met. So we've known each other for a long time. Clark is our first Vietnam veteran on the podcast, not our first Army veteran. We've had a lot of Army veterans, but our first Vietnam veteran on the podcast. So this should be very interesting. I hope it will be very interesting for everybody. Clark's got a ton of stories, an incredible memory, and did some uh, pretty amazing stuff over in Vietnam, and we're going to hear about some of that today. So why don't we start, Clark, with, you know, who you are and what you're doing today? Like, what's what's your job in the maintenance and reliability? Then we'll dial back to, you know, where you grow, grew up, what your influences were growing up and all that type of stuff. All right. Well, I'm working for, should I tell them what company or just, Yeah, that's fine. It's free advertising for them. Yeah. All right. I'm working for a company named Bureau Veritas. They acquired a company that I worked for uh, for about 25 years now. I started with them in 1983, and uh, then they closed the lab out from under me in 1991, and I went away for 15 years and worked for a major oil company, and then I came back. And I've been working for them ever since. And uh, we do lubricant analysis and, and lubrication, fuels, coolants, all of that stuff. And I do mainly, uh, mainly lubricants. Um, I work from home. It's very nice and quiet. Sometimes when I have the music playing and people call, they wonder where they called. But uh, it's one of those things. I enjoy it. I have became aware of oil analysis when I was in the military because in the aircraft, we used to have to send samples of the uh, gearboxes every 25 hours down to uh, 
Bung Tao in, in Vietnam, and they ran them. And uh, a funny story with that. One day we were sitting there just cooling our heels. We had a we had a mission where we were flying what they referred to as ash and trash. And we're waiting for our next job. And we're sitting there under the tower. And the tower calls us on the radio and says, your operations people want to talk to you. Okay, fine. So he got on the radio. And we're sitting there. And operations says, where are you? And it was broken. So we said, all right, this isn't going to work. So we untied the blades, went out and, and flew around the patch at about 1,100 feet. We got back on the horn with operations, and they said, where are you? And we told them, we're, you know, we're about 1,100 feet. They said, oh, that's probably not a good idea. And, of course, we asked why. And the answer why, the, the answer why was uh, because the oil analysis had come back that there was a problem in the main transmission. And, of course, the main transmission is connected to that big fan, which keeps the pilots and the crew cool. And if that stops, you know, it, it's not good. And so the discussion became at that point, would it be better to, to land again and wait for them to send the hook to come and get us or try to fly back? So we figured, all right, we'll try to fly back. And then the discussion was, do we fly back at high altitude or very low altitude, <laughs> trying to decide whether it's better because if the main transmission freezes, you can't uh, you can't auto rotate. So is it better to fall, you know, from thousands of feet or fall, but from just maybe a few hundred? And uh, as it worked out, we got all the way back and landed, all that, and uh, came to find out two days later that. The people down at Bunkhouse screwed up, and it was somebody else's transmission, not mine. Oh, my. Oh, it was a wonderful thing. Did you get to take a look at the transmission? I mean, did you go peek oh, we, into we it? Got, we got in under there. We, uh, we, what, we, what we did first is we landed the airplane and got in the hellhole, and they have what they refer to as chip detectors, which is basically a magnetic plug with an electrical connection. And if you get enough metallic chips on there, It'll complete the circuit. The light comes on. Well, I got in there and pulled the chip detector out. It was clean. All right, but put it back in. Uh, okay. And then the, the fun with the chip detectors is there's a check valve in there. So when you pull the chip detector out, it blocks things off so the oil doesn't leak all over the place. But sometimes the chip the, the uh, check valve doesn't close. And when the check valve doesn't close, then you get covered with hot oil. It's tons of fun. Oh. Interesting. Well, that uh, that trans transmission is pretty complicated, right? A bunch of gears and and all you know, all yeah, sorts. Yeah. Good. And when I got when I got out of I I went to school after I uh, after I got out of the military and I worked for Sikorsky Aircraft for about seven years and. I worked in the testing end of things, and we had uh, testing cells where we tested transmissions and uh, different gearboxes and all that stuff. And it was very interesting. And they hadn't they hadn't improved the chip detectors or or that check valve on iota in the time that uh, I was out. 
and uh, every once in a while the thing would hang up and you get gallons of oil sitting on the floor and it's like oh, okay this is uncool but uh yeah it happens but uh that's how i became aware of oil analysis was in the military right 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 so you you've touched on so you do the analysis now and do um sort of the comments right that the, yeah, the human I, I, human element of, I of look oil at the analysis data right? and i decide if the data is good or bad and, or if the data is uh indicating a problem and then i will make comments uh, on that and suggest courses of action and things like that and away it goes you know i do on average i average about oh 300 samples a day um so you don't spend a lot of time doing it but i by trade i'm a licensed uh airframe and power plants mechanic so like most of the folks that i work with really don't have a lot of mechanical experience but for me i do have a lot and it helps and it helps when i talk to the customers about problems they're uh, they're impressed and in the past we used to send what we referred to as data analysts uh, to overhaul schools. So if you've been to an overhaul school for a piece of equipment that you're talking to a customer about right then and there, uh, that, that enhances their comfort in the whole thing. Because, you know, many times they, even haven't, they haven't even been to these overhaul schools. And if you've been to that, you know, they're... Uh, you know, it, it's a good thing for them. It makes them feel more comfortable. Yeah, well, and in, in either on purpose or accidentally, I mean, you touch on something that many people coming out of the military may have, right? Especially if they were in oh, maintenance, yeah. maintenance positions on aircraft or rolling stock, uh, you know, Humvees, tanks, whatever, jet jet planes. And, and we've had, we have some, have had some submariners we had some aircraft maintenance folks here on the podcast fix wing and now you're a helicopter you were a helicopter crew chief in vietnam is that right yes yes and helicopters are an accident waiting for a time and place to happen anybody that's flown in them long enough will tell you that it happened to be the, the symbol of vietnam and in, in the way that oh, I, I, wars I, are fought had, today right that, well, we, funny thing i was supposed to be there for a fixed period of time and i was supposed to leave and then they extended me because of the mission we were performing and uh we're flying along fat dumb and happy and uh operations calls and uh they said hey you want to go home i said of course i want to go home what the hell i don't want to be here you know, I've been All here right. already. For, I've been here already for almost a year. You know, it's been amusing, but you know, I'm I'm done. And uh, they said, "Well, you can go go home today if you can get back and clear the firebase." So, aircraft commander says, "Well, you want to go?" And I said, "Yeah, why not?" So, we turn for home, and the engine fails. We had to make a precautionary landing. We landed in a in a nice, wide open rice paddy. There, there, there. 
got out standing in mud up to our knees. And uh, the aircraft commander says, you know, we can have them bring it, send another ship out to just get you. And then, you know, we'll get the uh, heavy lift stuff out to you know, come and get the airplane. And I said, no, nah. I said, by the time we get that all done, it'll be too late anyway. So I stood around until the Chinook came and we rigged the ship and we hooked it back. And I spent a, an extra night in Vietnam. So uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, in interesting stuff, Clark. I mean, you said a lot in, in the first 10 minutes of the interview here. So I just want to capture, we've had another oil analysis person, though, in a different capacity on the show. Brian Debshaw has been on the show. And oh, was, I know Brian. Yeah. yeah, right. Brian Air Colonel, Force. Colonel Debshaw. Right, right. At, at Polaris, right. So yes. so I think, um, you know, your perspective and how it can help people coming out of the military today is they may not even... They may have seen oil analysis, but they don't know where necessarily where it goes, what sort of value uh, they may have as being through these schools, overhaul, schools, maintenance, understanding, you know, providing the insight as to like, why is it important to pay attention to iron filings in your in your oil analysis? And, you know, what could it mean and what parts and stuff like that? So I think this is this is quite helpful when people coming out of the folks coming out of the service are trying to assess their worth and what they can do. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, you're not qualified to do anything in the civilian world. That's a load of crap, right? There's all kinds of things in addition to, to leading people, which everybody generally comes out with, at least in, in small part, maybe even in large part, but this, this type, you're an example of, uh using that experience to your benefit in the maintenance and reliability world. So, so that's good. So uh, before you were in Vietnam though, what, uh, where did you grow up? We don't have to start like when you were five, but like when you're in high school and like what influences well, did you have? I mean, what, what led you to uh, enlist, right? You volunteered to go to Vietnam at that time and you know, you chose. Times. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us the story. <laughs> so, at any rate, uh, I was born and raised in north uh, northeastern New Jersey, and uh, my father uh, was a World War II vet. He uh, he was born in the Netherlands, and he and my uncles were in the National Guard. And in 1939, when the federal government nationalized all the guard units. Uh, they looked at things and they figured my uncles were too old, so they kicked them out. And they figured out that my father was actually had been underage. And so they gave him the option of getting out or staying in. And they offered him a few stripes and, and all of that. And he said, nah, to hell with it, I'll get out. Which, in retrospect, probably turned out to be a good thing. Uh, that guard unit in Patterson, New Jersey, was an infantry unit, and they hit uh, Omaha Beach in the first wave or two, and more than 80% casualties. And my father always told me, he said, if I hadn't gotten out, you probably wouldn't be here, because I'd probably be dead. Uh, but he got out, and eventually uh, he got drafted again. And, and, and 
into the regular army and became actually, of all things, a, a, uh, a telephone lineman assigned to an uh, to a artillery unit. And all over France and Germany, he and his colleagues were stringing wire because back then the radios weren't secure. So when they, they used to string wires from the forward observers back to the artillery batteries, so they had, you know, fire control. So that's what he did over there. Uh, well, when I was very young, you know, he told me about things and he had some mementos and things that I saw. And uh, I remember I must have been, oh, three or four years old and my father and I were watching TV. And my father says to me, we're watching a cowboy movie. And I forget which one it was, but I... Uh, my father said to me, that's Audie Murphy. And I'm like, okay, Dad, who's Audie Murphy? Well, Audie Murphy was the most decorated soldier in World War II and a recipient of the Medal of Honor. Oh, okay. You know, and I learned about that, like I said, very young. And then the next Medal of Honor recipient I learned about was from another movie with, uh, with Alvin York. And World War One, and uh, so I'd known about that stuff, and I figured, well, there was a couple of things that drove me to enlist. Uh, other cousins of mine had served, uh, some at the end of the Korean War, and then some in a couple in Vietnam and that. And, and I always thought that, you know, at some point, it was my turn to pay my portion of the bill. So that was part of the reason I enlisted. And the other reason I enlisted is I wanted to see basically if I was good enough. And as it turns out, I was. Uh, and I received awards for certain things and that, you know, and, and, and that. And I was the honor graduate in every school. I was the honor graduate out of basic. And I was the honor graduate out of all the schools I went to. Uh, in fact, I can sit here if, and if I had a camera, I've got the uh, Army Aircraft Maintenance School Distinguished Graduate Diploma sitting right in front of me. Oh, that's so. So really, when you say uh, you wanted to figure out if you were good enough, what does that mean? Like you were as good as as your elders? I mean, you had a lot of positive. No, I wanted to figure yeah. if I was good enough just to hack it. Just, yeah. to, just you know, to, to, to be, to actually be in the military, mm. you know, and because, I mean, there's no, you know, you go in there, there's no reason that, you know, you're going to make it for sure. I mean, you could get singled out and, and sent on your merry way for any number of things. Uh, the funny thing was, uh, me being me, uh, when I got the basic training, the first thing I did is I looked at them and I just kind of laughed at myself and I said, I, I, you know, they said, you think this is funny? I said, to be honest, at this point, I think it's hilarious. I said, I know what you're doing. I know why you're trying to do it. And I said, I don't care how hard you work, you try, you can't beat me. And my drill instructors took that personally. And uh, 
Yeah, and, and they gave you some special treatment for that. I'm oh, guessing. hell uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I got, if, 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 if you wanted attention, that was one of the first things to do to make sure that you got all that you could handle. And for eight weeks, they tried their damnedest and got absolutely nowhere. And uh, it was funny. At the end, I ended up in the hospital because I got sick. I had a 104-degree fever. And I did, the, I did the PT test with 104-degree fever. And then right after that, my DI threw me in a, in a Jeep and, and drove me to the dispensary. But uh, when I got out of the hospital, I was there and, and everything was all done. Everybody was gone except for the DIs and the CO and the first shirt and all them. And, uh, you know, they, they told me, by the way, you were the honor graduate. You know, and the honor graduate got to carry the, the god arm and uh i said well why didn't you come and get me and they said well we thought the powder blue pajamas would kind of clash with the motif and i said you people are no fun and the co said he said there's something you need to know about this and he said the vote was unanimous he said it's the first time it's ever been unanimous and i said were you guys smoking things that you had left over from Vietnam? And they said, no. And I said, oh. I said, because I wasn't the best at anything. And they said, well, no, you were the best at one thing. And that is, you were always there for your buddies. You never let them down. If they were having a tough time, you were always there to help them. And when you had a 104-degree fever, and there were guys having trouble completing the mile run. You were already done, and you were running with them, cheering them on. And you had been like that from day one and never faltered. And as much as we tried to, to, to you know, to make things difficult with you, you actually volunteered for more. And uh, that was impressive. And I said, well, it still would have been fun to be out there in my pajamas holding the, holding the god iron. But uh, that was the first time I was the honor graduate in anything, but it wasn't the last. Yeah. No, that's that's a great honor. And, and clearly, clearly you made an impression and, and a positive impression. And, and I think it's it's reinforcing the behavior of you know, taking care of your folks, right? Your, your teammates and everything like that. So, so that probably made you feel pretty good. And then you, did well, you go off to was, help? Yeah, go the ahead. The thing that was funny was they, there was a recurring question all through basic training. And that was, where did we find you? And <laughs> you I found remember, them. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. Right. Right? You remember my service number starts with RA, not with US. I said, I found you guys. And they're like, oh, God. <laughs> but it was it was so funny. Uh, and I had, a, I had a great time. And there are other stories I could tell about. We had some National Guard DIs for a while. And I, they had one corporal. I tortured the hell out of him. He was an Italian kid from Newark. And uh, he came to his two weeks of summer training uh, out of shape. And I tortured him. 
Yeah, you were you were eighteen and and fit and tall yeah, and, I, and strong and all that. Yeah, I'd already been there for five weeks, so you know you you start to round into shape. And I tortured this guy to the point where the senior drill instructor dragged me aside and he says, "Leave the corporal alone." I said, "What do you mean, leave him alone?" He says, "He's feeling bad." And I said, "Oh," I said, "Well." Put him in this year. Was he can go to Vietnam with the rest of us? And the senior drill instructor just just shook his head and said, "This is an order. Leave him alone." You know, okay. So well, that's what I have to say if uh, if I want you to stop talking. We're out to lunch or something like that. If well, that that's that, what it, gets it, your it, attention. It won't help. <laughs> so did you go to? helicopter maintenance school or aircraft maintenance school after that then yeah, before right you went to that, Vietnam went yeah Fort Rucker Alabama a wonderful place or as everybody refers to it that has ever been there Fort Mother Rucker right right on right on and then they renamed it so but to everybody that's ever been there it's never going to change I don't give them who what they do you know it's it, never just the same as Fort Bragg is never going to be anything else other but Fort Bragg and Fort Benning is never going to be anything else but Fort Benning and Fort Hood is not going to be anything else but Fort Hood. I mean, I don't give a what they did. So, so were you undergraduate of aircraft maintenance? They call it aircraft or helicopter maintenance? School. Aircraft maintenance. I, was, aircraft. I went to two schools there and I was the undergraduate in both of them. Nice. Nice. And then you shipped over across the, across the pond, well, no, the western first, pond. First, I went down to Fort Walters, Texas to look at pilot training because by then I was in good enough shape to pass the, uh, the flight physical. And uh, I looked at that for about two days and I said, I went and found his major and I said, just get me out of here. I said, there is no way in God's green earth that I'm going to re-up, and there's no way in God's green earth that I'm going to come here and allow you people to bust my stones for almost a year to be a helicopter pilot. Just cut my orders and send me home, and then, you know, send me to Vietnam and be done with it. You know, and that was the end of that. No, I don't think I, I don't think I heard that story before. Maybe oh, yeah, I, I can't. Can't remember, but all right. So you were anxious to get over there and get in, get in the fight. And uh, well, I was in, actually, you know. I, I, I actually, I was anxious to get away from all the BS. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, like, I totally get it. Yeah, totally this, get it. This is not doing anything productive. You know, I mean, you've already proven you can do push-ups and sit-ups and run yeah. and all that stuff. You've yeah. already done that. There's no reason to continue that foolishness. I remember one Warren Officer candidate, they, for, two, for two days they busted his butt about fingerprints on his brass. And I don't care if his fingerprints are on his brass. What I give a damn is if can, can he hover. Hovering a helicopter is one of the hardest things anybody has ever done. And, you know, it's like, can he hover? Can he fly? If he can fly, you know, fine. If he can't fly, then, you know, weed him out and be done with him. You know, send him to down to Fort Polk, Louisiana to become 11 Bravo. You know, 
11 Bravo, by the way, is infantry. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I know that, but it's good for the listeners who don't know for sure. And so they were going to make you a warrant officer then, warrant officer, helicopter pilot. That was the, the potential well, path I, there. I considered that. They, uh, the, the colonel that was in charge of the, uh, the maintenance schools uh, sent me down there. I, he asked me after he handed me my diploma, is there anything I can do for you? And I said, I told him, I said, well, I had been interested in flying. He said, okay. He says, I'll send you TDY down to uh, Fort Walters, and you can take a look at it. And I went down there, and I took a look at it. And I said, no. <laughs> well, that was, I mean, you earned that, you earned that opportunity through being an honor graduate. So, yeah. all right. So, so then you, then you shipped off, and you showed up. and Oh, yeah, it was a that. wonderful thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember very vividly the the flight over. We went the long way from Travis Air Force Base across the Pacific to Hawaii to uh, the Philippines and into Guam and into Vietnam. And I was sitting next to a first lieutenant who was about to get promoted to captain. And he had been there before. And I'm sitting in the seat next to him singing under my under my breath that country joe and the fish song to feel like you're fixing to die rag and they're one two three what are we fighting for whoopee and i sang that can't say i can't say i'm familiar brother but uh well, yeah we'll go with look it. it look it up yeah or we should have music behind this that we should play that but at <laughs> any rate the, the lieutenant at one point somewhere between the Philippines and Guam says, you're really looking forward to this, aren't you? And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, well, don't worry. He said, that'll pass very quickly. Well, we got to Vietnam. We landed at, at Consinute and they turned the air conditioning off. And the temperature went from a probably a comfortable 75 to over 95, almost instantaneously. And we got out of the airplane and we're standing in formation on the concrete. And everybody had sweated through their uniforms at that point. And I'm sitting there and standing there next to that lieutenant. And I said, this sucks. He says, you think this is bad? He says, wait till you actually have to do something. He said, we're just standing here now. And he said, I told you that that enthusiasm would pass rather quickly. And I said, I didn't know it would pass in the first, you know, half an hour. And he goes, oh, you're going to love it. And I'm like, thank you, sir. You know, that was that was funny. But I I I had never been so hot. And and the weather, it was just hot and humid and there was no relief from it anywhere it was just there i remember trying to sleep the night before i'm sleeping under an overhead fan and i sweated through not only the sheets but the mattress when i got up in the morning the bottom of the mattress the underside of the mattress was wet that's how bad it was yeah, it sounds yeah it sounds like uh kentucky in the middle of of august here but oh, this is nothing <laughs> hey um so so you got over there right and 
yeah so i just want to make sure we cover some of this too but um i i would say that we probably have time for you know maybe a couple a couple stories and and the one and and you can decide which ones you you relate here but um the the one that struck me the most that you've told me is the one where you guys went to grab a hel- a helicopter crew that had been either shot down or or maintenance malfunction or no, something they like had, that. They, they had they had a, they had an engine failure. Engine uh, failure. Okay. We were flying command and control at that point. We used to hang with the gunships, and a lot of times we'd fly up ahead and look at the new LZ or this or that or whatever. So we're flying along fat, dumb, and happy and with the gunships. And all of a sudden, there's us in one gunship, and the other one is nowhere to be seen. And I remember the, you know, the conversation began, where the, hell, where the hell did the other gunship go? And I finally saw it, and I said, there it is. You know, it, it's, it's down there at about 9 o'clock. And... Uh, they said, oh, gee, you know, we looked and it was laying on its side and all of that. I said, well, I said, hold this damn thing still. And the pilot goes, why do you want me to hold it still? I said, so I can comfortably jump the hell out of here. And he says, why are you doing that? I said, it's the only way I know to get down there in between the trees. And so I, I jumped, I jumped out of the helicopter and ran over there. And, you know, we helped them get out of there. And uh, how, how far of a jump was that, Clark? I mean, about 30 feet. So you jumped 30 feet, didn't get hurt. Yeah. Is it into well, a rice paddy or what? No, no, it was it was relatively soft ground, but it, it okay. wasn't a rice paddy. But uh, I had seen my senior drill instructor in basic training jump off of the barracks and, and do a, a parachute landing for a fall, PL, PLF. And so I figured, well, if I try to do that, I should be okay. So I did my best imitation of that, rolled down and rolled across my shoulders and popped up. And, all right, that seems to work. All the parts are still connected. And so I ran over there to help those guys. And uh, we got them out of there and we managed to get another airplane in there and we loaded them up and... Uh, they told me to get in, and I said, "Well, I think I'll stay here." I said, "Because you've already got, you're already overloaded." And I grabbed the other guy that was with me, and I said, "Here, we'll stay here." And uh, they ordered us out of there. And I said, "Don't worry about it." I said, "Just tell the rest of the people up there that we're here, so they don't see us running around and shoot us." I said. I don't want that because, you know, that would be uncool and my mom wouldn't like it if people shot at me. And, uh, oh, it was so funny. But uh, we got in there and, and, and we took them to the evac hospital. And the good part of the whole story is that about three weeks after that, uh, we had to take some other people to that same evac hospital. And I got out and I found one of the nurses, and I I described those four guys to her, and she said, oh, yeah, she says, the two guys we released, you know, after overnight, the other two uh, went and got evacuated eventually after a couple weeks, 
to uh, Japan for uh, some some other uh, medical procedures and things like that. But they walked out of here on, under their own power, and I was glad to I was glad to hear that. Nice, nice. So they survived a helicopter crash, and oh, yeah. and you guys, you you in particular, uh, went out to to help them out and and get oh, yeah. them back to safety. So the one yeah. guy, the one guy had a had a broken hip and a broken shoulder. That was mm. the aircraft commander, and the other guy had uh, had broken his one arm, his, his upper upper arm, and also broke his leg, broke his upper leg, his femur. And, uh, but we got him out of there and, uh, it was interesting standing up on the helicopter on its side, reaching down into the helicopter to grab them, to try yeah. to pick them up out of there. Uh, it's amazing the, uh, the things you can do when you're motivated. And of course, I'm not the littlest guy either. And, uh, so it was, it was, it was fun, but we got him out of there. You know, that was the good part. No, that's that's great, Clark. Yeah, it's a great story, and uh, you know, incredible. May not have felt that you know super brave at the time, but certainly well, uh, anybody, anybody hearing it would feel that it was. Yeah. The interesting thing was that they put me in for the Distinguished Service Cross. I didn't get it, but they put me in for it, and I thought that that was absolutely ridiculous. Because the Distinguished Service Cross is just one step below the Medal of Honor. And as far as I was concerned, there's no way in God's green earth that what I did was, you know, qualified for, for something like that. I thought that was ridiculous. And as it worked out, I was right. I didn't get it. So, uh, you know, partially because of other political issues. And we'll leave it at that. Well, right on. Maybe, yeah, maybe they uh, assumed that it, if you didn't get that, it get downgraded to, uh, you know, Bronze Star or whatever, whatever the next, uh, you know, one associated medal that, was. Yeah. One of the things that was so funny in your retirement uh, celebration from the Navy, I remember I got to talk to your uncle, who was a retired Brigadier General. And I mentioned to him that I, I pretty much got along with all the all the ranks except for majors. And your uncle explained to me why majors always seem to have a problem. And I I laugh like hell because I never thought somebody who had achieved, you know, that rank would ever speak about themselves in that way. It was absolutely hilarious. Uh so, so you're talking about my uncle Len, who was Brigadier General in yeah. the Army, uh, Len Hoke. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, rest his soul. God rest his soul. So, so yeah, that was a good time. Uh, retiring the retirement party. Is glad to see you there, and and it was all good. Glad you got to meet him. And, and you remember we uh, we sang to uh, one of your uh, your your folks there that the woman that was the uh, E three pilot. We, we sang to her, and we had decided at that point, roughly, uh, that uh, between all of us, we had seen Top Gun over 300 times. 
Right on. You're right on. Yeah. Well, a lot of patriotic motivated people there. Uh, that was a great time. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I'm glad to have you there as well. So, Clark, part of this podcast is about transitioning uh, into civilian life, right? So we have, I don't know, about 15 or 20 minutes left. And okay. It when you transitioned from and we we could have you on another podcast and, and we could you know oh we can we can do that now hear hear other stories too uh, because I mean there's no shortage of content really really high quality good content I mean with the way that your brain works and the memories that you have but I think for the listeners um, and, and maybe from a historical perspective too you know, times are different today than they were back then. And, you know, can you describe what it's like for you coming back? And and before I even, well, I'll, I'll save that for later, but why don't you describe that? Well, yeah. And, we, yeah. And, you know, we, we can do that. Yeah. And uh, initially it was funny. I, I ended up coming home when I was completely unexpected and, uh, I flew, I, I ended up on a flight back across the country that must have stopped at every airport between Cal, between San Francisco and Newark, New Jersey. And uh, the pilot, the guy, the, the captain, I ended up talking with him and I actually sat in the jump seat for most of the flight with him and BSed about airplanes and stuff and... Uh, Whenever we land someplace, he'd let me get off the airplane and quick try to run and get a, you know, call somebody on the phone to tell him I was coming. And it never worked until I actually got to Newark. So I got to Newark and I found a phone and I called. I didn't remember my home phone number, but I remembered my, my aunt and uncle's number. So I called that. She called my aunt Edith, called my mom and, you know, said I was, you know, down in the airport in Newark. So I'm standing there, you know, I got my bags and, and all of that. And some ding dong with long hair and in white robes decides it's this is his big opportunity to bust my and uh, I told the guy, I said, look, man, go away. Oh, you're into baby killers and blah, 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 and this and that. And, I said, look, just do me a favor. Just go away. And uh, he was persistent. And at that point, I had him by the throat. And I was about to turn his lights out. And I cocked my fist. And a hand reaches over my shoulder and grabs my fist and says, don't do it, son. Let me. And it was a Port Authority police officer. And he grabs this idiot by the ear and drags him outside, kicks him in the seat of the pants a couple of times and shoves him. And that was the end of it. He comes back in. He, he looks at me and he goes, boy, I enjoyed doing that. And I looked at him and I said, oh, okay. I said, well, you need to know that uh, my family has been in the law enforcement business now for about 70 years starting with my, my grandfather. It's been over 100 now. And uh, we talked to that and everything. And he, we uh, finally, he says, you got anybody coming to get you? And I said, I think so. And he, he looks at me and he said, 
well, I think she's here. And I turned around and there was my mom and uh, was so funny. She was so nervous and so happy. They got the big hug and the kiss and all that and everything else. And I talked to the Port Authority police officer a little longer and that. And then we decided it's time to go. So I've got my duffel bag and I've got a big suitcase. So my mom says, let me try to help you. you know, let me help you with those. And she grabs the duffel bag and she can't pick it up. So, okay. So then she figures, well, maybe the suitcase. She grabbed the suitcase. She couldn't pick that up. And I said, don't worry about it, Mom. And I picked them both up, and, and, and away we went. And she just looked at me like. So we threw them in the car. We're leaving the airport. She was so nervous and upset, I had to make her stop the car, and I drove home. Because I there was no way that I was going to look at this and uh, end up seeing myself on the evening news saying, Man returns from Vietnam, dies in car crash, film at 11. <laughs> right. So we went to... What was, what was she so nervous about? Uh, do you, do you, just that I was there. Yeah. And I yeah. had come home, you know. And my my Aunt Edith's son, my cousin George, had done the same thing four years earlier. So my mother and her sister were batting a thousand. Both of her sons, both of their sons went to Vietnam and both came home. So, no, that's that's good. Lucky. Yeah. A lot of people weren't that lucky. Well, and there weren't, you know, there's nobody there other than your mom, right? I mean, not not well, sort of welcome. She was the only one that was there to pick me up. Yeah, yeah. And, well, uh, I posted no. I, I posted a thing on Facebook not too long ago, thanking everybody that was there to greet me when I came home. Uh, it's a picture of somebody delivering the the single digit salute. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's and, and that's good to know that you're on Facebook too. I don't think you're on LinkedIn. You might be, but uh, oh yeah, for, I am. I am. Folks. It's a wonderful thing. I oh, but one of the things, if you get on the LinkedIn or you get on any of those, uh job hunting things. Be careful about what you're asking for. Because like, I've used the words data analyst many times because that's what we refer to what I do as. But there are data analysts that wouldn't know, you know, a quart of oil from, you know, a beer. I mean, so you got to be very careful about how you describe things and everything and what words you use. I mean, if you use the word design in anything, now all of a sudden you're a designer. You know, yeah, right. You know. Well, all, all kinds of data out there and certainly uh, maintenance data or, or anything. I think that's really good, really good advice. Uh, yeah, you got to be very careful about that because I mean, I get, you know, I get things on LinkedIn almost daily for jobs that there is no way in God's green earth. Once I talk to these people, that they would if go, they only knew what would come with that package, oh, if they not, hired not, you, Clark, not, you know, not only, you know, I mean, Mr. Wonderful. Well, yeah, he's, he's a great guy. Uh, we, we don't need to tell them that five different uh, Morton's restaurants know me as Mr. Wonderful. Okay. 
So you're a fan of, fan of the stakes, right? Gotcha. And so what, what I was kind of poking in to a little bit and welcome home, by the way, from all the, the patriotic Americans here that well, were around during Vietnam and didn't get a chance to welcome that's you. One of those things, you know, uh, the government has managed to screw things up every way to Sunday in every conflict, uh, even during World War II. But one of the things that they don't get is the president of the United States goes and says, all right, I want to do, you know, I want to intervene in this. I want to do something here. And so he goes and he asks, you know, the DOD and all these people, you know, what can we do? So, and he has his options and he goes to Congress and says, I want to do this. And these are the options. And Congress debates the whole thing and the House and Senate and everything, and they vote on it. Well, if they vote, whatever they vote for, that's it. Right? And that's what we're going to do. Okay. Well, but then they drop the ball because at that point, the president and all the members of Congress, whether they voted for something or against something, once you put people in the field once you commit people to combat boots on the are, ground yeah you are honor bound to support them 100 percent un you know unconditionally and that means if you like if you voted against it that's fine you can vote against something i mean that's part of the joy of this country we can we can have different opinions but once it's voted on and it passes, you are now committed to support that. And you are now committed to keep the American people behind the effort and to keep the American people behind those war fighters. 100% with no dissension ever. Or you ought to go to Leavenworth. Right on. Right on. They, yeah. They have dropped the ball. They dropped the ball in Korea. They dropped the ball in Vietnam. They dropped the ball with Desert Storm. They, I mean, every so, time they've dropped the ball. Right, right. So let's let's move on to... Um, I, by the way, I volunteered to speak to a joint session of Congress through my representative to explain that to them because obviously they don't know what they're supposed to be doing, but I don't have that problem. Right, right. So and you've got a, you've got a lot of wisdom and an <laughs> opinion opinion to go along with that. So uh -huh. I think I think as we round it out here, uh, Clark, some of the stories that you've told me in the past of uh, trying to really find employment after you came back, and it was pretty challenging. From, oh, from what I remember, things, yeah. One of the first things was. When I when when I was when I was released and all that, I figured I had a job before I went in, and I figured what I would do is I would come back and I would, you know, go back to that job and work there for a while, trying to decide what I was going to do. Well, they wouldn't hire me back, so I went to my congressman, a gentleman named Bob Rowe, who was a Democrat from New Jersey. And uh, I said, you know, you need to help me with this. And what I wanted 
is I wanted either one of three things. I either wanted to be escorted there by federal marshals and told that you will employ him whether you want to or not, it's the law. And if you don't do it, we're going to do one of two things. We're going to put you in prison or we're going to close your business or you've got to pay him a year's salary. And according to the wonderful Mr. Rowe, well, you know, the war isn't very popular. And I said, let me explain something to you there, son. I said, it's less popular for the people that are actually over there prosecuting it than the people here. The people here aren't getting shot at, right? The people over there are. And it's about time you people, you know, supported us. And, and it, I got nothing. So you actually yeah. ended up being uh, unemployed for, for some time and, and then oh, homeless, well, homeless too, right? Or, well, no, or close, close to homeless? That like happened. down to your last nickel or I, something I like that? Living, I was living with my parents. No, that was another time. But uh, after that, I decided I was going to go to school. And uh, so I went, I went to, went to, signed up for my VA benefits and went to school and worked part time. Uh, and actually, I worked part time for almost a couple of years there in the, uh, in the emergency room of the uh, Barnett Hospital in, in Patterson. Very interesting. Uh, well, you did that, and then you did some police work too, didn't you? Were you? Uh, oh, I did. I did yeah. that afterwards. That was that was another thing. But like, you I moved said, up to Connecticut for yeah, a while. My family yeah, had been in the in the business for a long time, so that I fell into that pretty easy. But uh, that, but. Uh, Right before you and I met, uh, when they closed the lab, uh, at one point there, when I was working for, we were working for Bob and that, I was working part-time there. I was working part-time for cash gold doing things. I was working part-time for a, uh, a store called, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Oh, like uh, like Best Buy or something? No, it was Radio Shack, right? Or no, no, it was. Uh, oh, I can't think of the name of it right now. I'll think of it. But dumb. And I also worked pumping gas. I had four part-time jobs, and while I was, you know, I was doing things, and then eventually, when they decided they were going to move, you know. The, uh, they were going to consolidate all the all the stuff for uh, cash roll for Optimal and and Tribal and all the rest of that and everything. I got offered a job and ended up in uh, you know you and me and a bunch of other people ended up in Illinois. Right so, on. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so uh, yeah. So so uh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Clark. Yeah, that was. That financially, that was a difficult time. But the uh, the people that that ran the uh, the what do you call it the uh, the apartments where I was living were very kind, and uh, I went to them early on and I said, "Look, there's going to come the first of a month where I don't have the money to pay you," and they said, "Don't worry about it. As long as you pay us at some point, 
we're good. And, uh, you know, when I started working for Bob, then I had, I had more money and it, it ceased to be a problem. Uh, but I was working on average about 70, 75 hours a week, starting at about 6 a.m. and working till about 9 o'clock at night. And it was cool. I was actually making as much money as I was when I had one job. But I didn't have any time to spend the money, so I was actually getting rich. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's funny how that works, right? Yeah, yeah. But, so, so let me let us wrap up here, Clark. With uh, you know any any advice that you have for you know people transitioning, veterans transitioning out of the military, or or folks that are looking to hire them. I know in our our at our past employer, you've hired some. Um, some marine. Some oh, Marines, I, 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 yeah. I hired one, one, one young guy. This was a funny thing. Uh, the kid had been to Iraq in uh, 2004, and uh, I, I, he came in for an interview. They were going to let me hire uh, a what do you call it, a, a temporary. And uh, so I saw all the resumes, and 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 I called in a, a few people to make it look good, but I had already decided when I read this kid's resume where it said United States Marine Corps, I said, all right, this is the kid I'm hiring. Mm -hmm. And uh, so at any rate, we talked to the other people and he comes in and had the interview set for about 1130. And me and another guy that you probably still remember, Randy Crinker, were there going to interview Scott. Yep. Yep. And uh, we're there and Scott had been a heavy machine gunner in the Marine Corps. So the first thing I did, I used to use 50 caliber ammo cans to store specimens because they're watertight. And so I took one of those and I put it in the middle of the, uh, the, the conference room table. Didn't say a word. Scott walks in and introduces himself. And the first thing he looks at that ammo can and he's like, he, did, he must have looked at that ammo can five or six times in a row. He's trying to figure out what the hell that ammo can's doing there. And so we're talking and everything else. And I asked him a bunch of questions about the mod dues and this and that, the Marine Corps and all that. And finally, he says to me, he says, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And uh, he said, what the hell does any of that have to do with the job? I said, oh, nothing at all. I said, I had already decided I, I was going to hire you. I just have to make the offer. I said, the question at this point is whether we're going to go to lunch or not. I said, you up for lunch? And he goes, well, yeah. I said, all right, good. And Randy and I took him to this little microbrew here in Naperville. And uh, over a few beers and, and lunch and everything, I made him the offer. And uh, three days later, he started. Well, it certainly helps to to understand each other, and and I think well, Scott was lucky that that you happened to be the hiring manager in that that particular situation because you well, know it's, yeah. it's one of those things. If given, you know, a choice, given a choice of five people, and you've got one person that served, if you think at all that they can do the job, that's the person you hire because. As veterans, if we don't look out for one another, who's going to do it? You know, that's I mean, right. That's right. That's and and that's that's what 
this uh, this podcast is about. Fortunately enough, we have a lot of patriotic folks at Mobius that that also believe well, that too, and in, in the maintenance and reliability community, especially because uh, I mean, you're a nice example of coming from aircraft maintenance and in making your way into oil analysis as a specialty and and as well as some of the other folks or most of the other folks that we've interviewed here too oh, yeah. so. and, you know it's it's a wonderful but that's you know it's the same thing that i encourage people that are qualified to join the vfw and if not join the american legion because as veterans i mean i don't you know i don't know about anybody else i didn't join for the benefits i joined because my father you know, my father and my cousin served, and I figured it was my turn to pay my portion of the bill. And I wanted to see if I was good enough. You know, but uh, it's one of those things that if we don't hang together and we don't have some strong voices in Washington, like the American Legion and the VFW, all of that stuff that we have is going to go away. And so... That's up to you. That's up to us to look out for you know fellow veterans, and regardless of what uh, you know when or where they serve. Uh, I have a friend of mine I went to high school with, joined the Air Force, went to basic training at Lackland Air Force Base down in, in Texas, and then went to March Air Force Base to go to school, and never let he served his entire the. the the rest of his three, the rest of his four years at at March Air Force Base, never went anywhere else. Mm. That's rare, but you know, and and he's somewhat apologetic because he never made it to Vietnam. I said, who cares? You could have you could have ended up there, but it it just it just didn't work out. The the particular job that you had, you were more important at March Air Force Base than you would have been in you know, Benoit or Tonsonut or Da Nang or Cameron Bay or anywhere else. I said, but the fact, the fact of the matter is you served. And as long as somebody has stuck their right hand up and said those words, I do solemnly swear, we need to take care of one another. Right on, right on, brother. Yeah. So, if people want to want to reach out to you, you're you're on LinkedIn and Facebook. Oh, so yeah. uh, I'm not sure how many uh, people will, but <clears throat> excuse me, but most of the most of these uh, episodes or interviews are are getting a fair amount of play. Uh, thanks to the Kim and the folks at, at Mobius here. So you might, and uh, you're willing to talk to him and, and you sure. can relate. Right. So, so Clark, I, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and help us on this mission and folks can get a hold of you. We already talked about that quick note to our listeners that we're seeking both women veterans, as well as recently transitioned vets and Marines. We don't have any Marines yet, but our last uh, <laughs> our last podcast interview with Marines are the only holdout on this. We have know. we have a laugh about that in my in my uh what do you call it? My my VFW. We got one Marine. He's the shortest guy on the in, in the post and he always gets his stones crushed because he's in the Marine Corps. It's it, it it's hilarious. It it's absolutely hilarious. 
Well, well it's uh, interesting. It's a small and uh, very, uh, you know, dedicated, honorable group. I don't think it's smaller than the Coast Guard, though. And we have had Coast Guard, uh, at least one person from the Coast Guard and maintenance and reliability on, on the show. So we're still looking for Marines, certainly females and recently transitioned vets to give uh to give guidance but really clark your, I gotta your say voice one more thing yeah go ahead go ahead buddy uh i ended up in the hospital twice when i was in vietnam and i remember the the second time that i was in there when i after i had the machine gun blow up in my face i was there and i was there for about a week and a half and uh as far as I'm concerned, and in, in, in my not-so-humble opinion, the worst job that you could, could have had in Vietnam is to be a nurse. To have to stand there over some guy who's all busted up and shot up and everything and hold his hand when he says to you, please, ma'am, don't let me die alone. Mm. Or if he says to you, or, or he says to her, ma'am, would you please tell my mother I loved her? If that doesn't tear your heart out, you don't have one. Mm -hmm. And those women did that day in, day out. And I mean, if I could, if I could do it, I'd hand every one of them a check for a million dollars. I mean, they're, they're just tremendous people. Uh, and angels of mercy right oh they're just yeah. and that job and i remember uh the, the one nurse maria and uh she took me to the beach the one day when i still couldn't see and uh so just for the listeners you had it was it the ammo box or something, the machine gun blew up in yeah, your face you had and, and i my my head was bandaged up because they didn't my the cornea had to had to heal and all. But that. you had bits, you had stuff in your eyeballs, right? That yeah, had to be yeah. picked out, like gunpowder oh, yeah, and all this. Yeah, uh, I had a very nice nurse sit on, sit across from me, and and I was having a lot of trouble keeping my eyes open while they were picking the part the pieces out, and she sat across from me and she took my hands and she looked at me and she said, "Just look in my eyes." She said, "Don't look at anything else." Just look in my eyes. And she sat there for an hour and looked at me and smiled at me and everything. And I, you know, and every time I closed my eyes, she said, no, no, come on. It'll be all right. Don't worry about a thing. And she, she sat there for an hour and did that. When I'm sure she had a lot of other things to do. But she sat there like that. And, uh, I mean, I appreciated that to no end. But uh, when I ended up up in the, the hospital up in Cameron Bay, uh, the nurse there that took care of me most of the time was a Puerto Rican girl from uh, Brooklyn named Maria. I sang the song from West Side Story to her. And uh, it was, but I, she said to me, she said, you know, she said, if you go by the nurse's quarters at, at night, she says, you'll invariably hear some people crying. And she says, that's us. She mm -hmm. said, we'll never cry in front of you guys, ever. Mm -hmm. she says, I was told that in my first three days in country. You never cry in front of the guys, ever. 
It just is not done. And I can't think of a tougher job than the job they had. And boy, if I could do it, I would thank each and every one of them. I mean. Well, let's let's say cheers to the, the military nurses out there because I'm sure there will be some that will listen uh, to the podcast and, uh, you know, and, and appreciate it for, for what it is, Clark. So I apologize. My dog is barking in the background. Maybe Uh-oh, we can time to go for a walk. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can filter that out uh, later. But thank you, Clark. And thank you, Mobius, for providing this platform to help both transitioning vets as well as those looking to hire them in the field of maintenance and reliability. It's been a distinct pleasure and honor, Clark, to to talk to you today as I am lucky enough to get to do that on a fairly regular basis as uh, as we hang out together. Out with another so. tonight. Uh, what do you call it's coming down? Ronnie Lemke. Oh, is that right? Okay. He was in the Navy during, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Desert Storm. Well, tell Ronnie I said hello. Uh, he yeah. also worked at Castro with us and uh, oh, is, yeah. is a great guy. So thank yeah, you, Clark. He's the Navy now. His boys are. It's it's yeah. a family business, or oh, so okay. we've heard. They're, uh, <laughs> right. they're involved in uh, in nuclear submarines. Oh, better them they than me. To, yeah. Both of them went to nuke school. I like being in the water, but I like being outside the submarine in the so water. You like to keep so. the window open, huh? Yeah, that's right. So I'll, I'll, I'll clean off. I'll the clean way. off the windows for him. There you go. So right. Flipper can wave on the on the way by, but <laughs> all right, brother. Well, thank you. Uh, this this wraps it up for this one, and uh, season two, episode two, is just is a wrap. All right, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Veterans Connected. We will see you back for another episode very soon. In between, we hope to see you in the Veterans Connected community group where you can meet Eric and fellow podcast guests and share with other industry veterans at MobiusConnect.com. And we hope to see you there.